Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. I am thrilled to welcome our guest today, Paul Braithwaite, Chief Strategist of Federal Street Strategies. Paul has worked in government and around government for 20 years. He began his career in the House of Representatives, but also spent time during the Clinton administration in the Departments of Transportation and at the Department of Labor. I got to know Paul in his next job, when he was Executive Director of the Congressional Black Caucus, or CBC. He spent six years in that role under three different chairs of the CBC, where he was responsible for coordinating all domestic and foreign policy legislative initiatives. To know Paul is to admire him. He represents just the highest levels of professionalism, substantive expertise, political know-how, and calm under pressure. He is also unfailingly gracious and friendly and interested in people. I am far from the only person that feels this way about Paul. In fact, he is the type of staffer that members rave about. Former Congressman Charlie Rangel described Paul's role as executive director of the CBC, quote, the most difficult staff role in Congress, and said Paul handled it with excellence and style that is universally admired. Former Congressman and beloved leader Elijah Cummings gave Paul the nickname Mr. Connection and called his leadership, ingenuity, and determination, quote, instrumental in the success of the CBC. Paul has received numerous awards for his public service, including the inaugural Brenda Pillars Award from the Foundation for Ethnic Understanding. He was twice named to the list of Roll Call's Fabulous 50 staffers on Capitol Hill, and today he is widely recognized as one of the top GR professionals in Washington. Paul and I recorded this episode on Friday, November 5th. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Paul Braithwaite, welcome to Staffer. Thank you, Jim. Great to be here with you. It is wonderful to have you here today. You know, I normally start my interviews by asking people kind of where they grew up and a little bit about their families, which I'm going to get to. But I want to start with the job that you held when you and I met, uh, because you were executive director of the Congressional Black Caucus under three different chairs, Congresswoman Eddie Bernice Johnson of Texas, the late and wonderful Elijah Cummings of Maryland, and Mel Watt of North Carolina. The CBC uh, is is one of the many congressional member organizations or CMOs. These are like non-committee entities of members that are like-minded. They come together um, around an issue or a set of priorities, and they're officially recognized by the House. They can, some of them, hire staff like you to manage their affairs and, and direct them. But I think it's fair to say of the hundreds of these CMOs that exist, there are only a handful that are you know, relevant and impactful to the process. And the CBC is you know, like the granddaddy of them. So for those who are unfamiliar with the CBC, can you first start by just telling us a bit about its history, how it was formed, and, and what it's committed to? That's a great question, Jim. And they are celebrating the Congressional Black Caucus 50 years of existence this year. Uh, So you mentioned granddaddy. That that might be uh, a good way to phrase it, given that 
they are they are now going to certainly be 50 plus starting starting next year and enter, entering into that range of being a grandfather. Um, but you know that the caucus was started uh, in 1971. Uh, by a group of African-American members who came together and, as you said, formed a CMO. I don't know if it was called called a congressional member organization uh, at the time, but they met uh, when President Nixon uh, was in office and asked for a meeting with him to go over as a delegation uh, and thus started the history of the Congressional Black Caucus. Um, And over the years, uh, I, I don't think that their mission uh, has changed one bit. They call themselves the conscience of the Congress. Um, and I will just remind our listeners that I don't think I've ever heard a Congressional Black Caucus member say, I only represent African-American people because in every congressional district, there is a wide uh, diversity of uh, of wonderful Americans who live in those districts. And if you're a politician worth your salt, you know all of the prominent groups of people in your committee community, from the religious community to the business community, uh, to the doctors, to the uh, truck driver organizations, and have to get reelected every two years if you're in Congress and every six, obviously, if you're in the uh, United States Senate. But as that caucus has grown uh, from uh, from their origins in 1971 to the largest group ever. Just yesterday, they swore in uh, a new member of the Congressional Black Caucus, Chantel Brown, who is now the 58th member of the Congressional Black Caucus and replaces Congresswoman Marsha Fudge, who joined President uh, uh, Biden's cabinet as as, as, as Secretary uh, of Housing and Urban Development. But uh, why don't I pause there and, and, and we can have a dialogue more and talk about the Congressional Black Caucus. Yeah. So uh, as I mentioned, you are its executive director over three different chairs. Can you tell us about that role? Like what as executive director was you know, your role in managing that diverse set of members, despite the fact that they all happen to be African-American? As you point out, they've got diverse interests, come from diverse communities, from all over the country. So how do you get them all headed in the same direction? Well, it was my job to try to do that, Jim. Uh, And we... Uh, uh, we were, we were tasked as a staff. I was the executive director, but I certainly had help, uh, in, in that, uh, with a, with a few staffers working for all of the members of the CBC. It was our job to help them coordinate both their sort of domestic and foreign policy objectives. And, um, it was a, it has been the most fascinating job I've had in Washington, D.C. since I came uh, to, to town in, in, you know, professionally, uh, full-time, uh, in the fall of, uh, 1996. Um, I didn't start working with them until 2001. Um, but look, uh, they, they are geographically, uh, and politically very diverse. So your member from Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana is not like your member from, California, Wisconsin, Michigan, and New York. And so trying to thread a needle uh, of engaging uh, on the priorities that they all share and trying to come to consensus does take a lot of work. Uh, You know, I've never seen a group of members or all members, quite frankly, work extremely hard uh, day in and day out. And and they don't have 
weekends and recesses uh, to, to, to just lounge around. I mean, they are constantly going uh, because, again, they represent each of them today. Uh, if you're a member of Congress, 750,000 people. Um, and then when you combine all of that, uh, you know, if, with the senators now from New Jersey and uh, and Georgia, Senators Booker and, and Warnock, uh, that's, those are tens of millions of Americans uh, all across uh, all across this great country. Um, and, you know, the job was, you know, every day I used to say it's not Groundhog Day because it is a different task and it was a different uh, set of issues that you were dealing on day to day, again, from healthcare to education to transportation. Uh, you know, a foreign dignitary is coming to town and now you're working with an ambassador's office. Uh, it was just fascinating and, and, I, and I enjoyed it uh, very, very, very much. Well, and, and to your point that, uh, you know, the members of the Congressional Black Caucus, like other caucuses, they too belong to other CMOs, right? So you within the CBC, you also have New Dems and Blue Dogs and progressives. Um, and one of the tools for getting people all in this same direction um, is meeting in person. And the Congressional Black Caucus has a weekly meeting. And for those who are uh, unfamiliar with Capitol Hill, certain meetings sort of contribute to like the rhythm of Capitol Hill. These can be caucus or conference meetings, lunches. But when those groups meet, they are sort of turning points in the week on, okay, what are, you know, what does, what, what is the membership thinking Therefore, what are we able to do this week or next week based on conversations that are happening in these meetings? Can you give us a window into that weekly CBC meeting, sort of what happened and, and what the feel was like? Well, th- those were uh, amongst the most fascinating times on Capitol Hill for me. Um, as you said, uh, the caucuses meet uh, regularly, or at least the CBC meets regularly. It was Wednesday at noon every week they met when Congress uh, was in session, and it was scheduled to be a two-hour meeting. And you know, I, I, the way I would characterize it is is um, they would they would have their agenda, and then there would be outside interests who would want to share their agenda with uh, with the members as well. And when I say outside interests, these could be leaders of um, leaders of cabinet agencies, uh, the presidents. Uh, cabinet members. Uh, it could be other members of Congress, other members in leadership, senators and the like, all talking about different policies um, that they would like to share uh, with the members of the CBC. I could imagine now at, at a weekly Wednesday CBC meeting uh, for the last several weeks, they've been talking about Build Back Better uh, and the bipartisan infrastructure framework and engaging with Secretary Buttigieg and Secretary Fudge and Secretary Granholm, all secretaries of various cabinet departments, obviously Mr. Buttigieg at Transportation, Ms. Fudge at the Housing and Urban Development, um, and Ms. Granholm over at Energy. Um, you would you would you would tend to tend to see them, uh, you know, uh, on a weekly basis engage with folks who were uh, making policy and in the day to day news. Uh, of, uh, of policy issues um, on a regular basis. And, um, you know, look, it, it was fascinating to sit around and listen to the members strategize amongst themselves as to how they were going to approach 
uh, different uh, different problems, different opportunities, uh, be proactive or reactive based on whatever has happened over uh, the last week. But one of the key things that I think uh, the chairs used to do was they would set an agenda at the beginning of every Congress or you know, during the halfway point of a Congress, may re- readjust a little bit, but try to come back to focal points of what they wanted to be working on uh, and bills they wanted to be working on and efforts that they wanted to be working on to try to put their stamp on um, on on policies that Congress were uh, was considering. Well, as I mentioned, you worked for three different chairs all of whom are great members and such uh, impressive people. But I do want to ask you about one of them. Uh, And that uh, is Elijah Cummings, who passed away in 2019. And after um, he passed away, Speaker Pelosi said this, In the House, Elijah was our North Star. He was a leader of towering character and integrity, whose stirring voice and steadfast values pushed the Congress and the country to rise always to a higher purpose. And just reflecting on my time as a staffer there, you know, I was fortunate enough to be in in many meetings with him when he spoke it re- it landed differently than, you know, other members. And I'm not, certainly you know, John Lewis had a larger public profile. That is, he was more famous and for very good reason. But Elijah Cummings and he were very much, you know, representative of that conscience that the the Congressional Black Caucus was known for. I'm wondering if you could speak about uh, Congressman Cummings and, and what you learned from him. Well, well, I learned so much from him, Jim, and uh, I, I take uh, so many lessons uh, that I uh, that he shared uh, and 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 lived his life uh, sort of following. He he had, as you said, uh, uh, words that would come together uh, that when you heard them, you were like, "Huh, <laughs> that makes sense." Um, but he always used to talk about um, your uh, your pain uh, leading to your passion, uh, then leading to your purpose. Um, and, you know, all of us in our lives have had, uh, you know, stumbling blocks and things that have called us pain that then turn into passions. His was around, uh, you know, helping the people of Baltimore and helping the people of our country um, uh, and do, do better, which would then turn into what is your what is your purpose or what his purpose uh, was in life. But, you know, he always would talk about the fact that, you know, we don't have much time, so we don't have time to, to, to waste. And he was always, uh, I would, he was always in a hurry. Uh, and perhaps it was because he knew he was not, you know, 100% well. And he was like, I'm going to use every minute of every day to try to make people's lives better. Uh, and that's what he would constantly come back to. Um, and, you know, he, he told me one time, you know, when we were we would propose ideas and meet with him on a weekly basis. Uh, Doug Thornell, who's a friend of yours and, and now works here in town at, at the, one of the public relations firms and Jewel James, uh, uh, who is now here in town as well and, and works uh, at, uh, at one of the big banks uh, doing uh, doing great work. And Doug is doing great work as well. 
Uh, we would all gather with him and we would present him with ideas. And after coming out of our Wednesday meeting, we would talk about what we would do for the next meeting and the like. Uh, and he's, and he, I remember him telling us that, you know, 90% of the stuff that you guys want to do is really good. The other 10% is going to get me in a lot of political trouble. Uh, and, uh, and we probably can't go that far, but he would always lean into problems and issues and, um, you know, I, you know, I, they're, they're great stories. I could tell you one of them was when he, he formed this interesting relationship with Roger Ailes, the former president of Fox news. And you may remember, uh, and this is going back a long time. This is back to 2004. We worked for him in 2003 and 2004. Uh, the CBC did a presidential debate and we did a presidential debate on Fox news I think that's probably unthinkable now that Fox News and the CBC would partner on doing a presidential debate. But it came out of a relationship that Congressman Cummings had formed with uh, Roger Ailes. And Ailes eventually came to Cummings with a proposal and said, listen, we'll do an hour and a half on TV. You all can pick the moderators for the debate. So this you can't say that we're just going to put our uh, primetime lineup on there to ask Democratic presidential candidates questions. He said, the only thing I would ask of you is that you would uh, ensure that all the Democrats who are um, running uh, participate in the debate. He kept his word. Congressman Cummings kept his word. And we did a presidential debate at Morgan State University um, and HBCU in Baltimore. Um, and it was the first presidential debate on a uh, on a uh, on an HBCU campus or affiliated with an HBCU. Uh, and I still remember Congressman Cummings then, you know, having a conversation with uh, with a reporter at USA Today that landed him on the front page of the uh, of the USA Today newspaper, advancing a CBC debate where we were able to uh, uh, have our own debate about issues that were important. Uh, to the country, but issues that were important to the African-American um, community. I had forgotten about that, and it really is illustrative of Congressman Cummings, uh, both in his you know, willingness to do ambitious things. Also, it is impossible not to like <laughs> Elijah Cummings. To to be around him was was to like him. And as a staffer, you know, and politics generally, there is this balance between doing what you think you can do to win and doing it the right way. And, you know, he was always a voice for making sure you're doing both, right? Never, never let uh, the angel on the shoulder that is whispering to you to do, you know, the wrong thing. Um, never let that be what, you know, contributes to a victory. You got to do it the right way as well. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Wash U at Brookings, executive education for those who work in and with government. Wash U at Brookings believes leadership development begins when you embrace a service-oriented, purpose-driven life. Become a leader equipped to make a positive and principled difference in your organization, community, and society at large. Find out more about Wash U at Brookings at olin.wustl.edu slash seminars. That's olin.wustl.edu slash seminars. Let me ask now about you. 
Uh, so before you ever got there, and as you mentioned, it wasn't your first job in politics. Uh, I want to know more about your growing up. You know, where did you grow up, and what was family life like? Yeah. Uh, well, I uh, I was born in Washington D.C., so I feel like I've come back home. Uh, I was born on the campus of Howard University when my mom was uh, working on her PhD there, um, and uh, we stayed here until I was four or five. Uh, and then we moved to Delaware, where she got a job working at Delaware State University. Um, it was Delaware State College when she went there and later now has become Delaware State University. Um, so I grew up in Delaware. Uh, I went to, to school K through 12 uh, in Delaware. I went to college at Delaware State University. Um, I got my first job working for uh, Tom Carper when he was a member of the House. So that should tell you how long ago that was, because he has since <laughs> served as governor uh, and now has served uh, in the United States Senate um, and is uh, is now in his fourth term uh, serving in the Senate. But when I was in uh, when I was an undergraduate, I got to spend the summer working as an LBJ intern uh, for Congressman Carper, then Congressman Carper. Um and, uh, and that sort of whetted my appetite towards gravitating towards politics. But it was really, uh, you know, in 11th grade where I, I found, you know, uh, a true liking and a true interest in, uh, in this work. I had uh, a project where we had to track, Jim, the 1988 presidential uh, election. And we had to keep track of what was happening in uh, the caucuses and the primaries and who was ahead. And that was the year that Mike Dukakis and uh, George H.W. Bush uh, eventually were the nominees. And we had to track all through 11th grade uh, what was happening in that uh, in that particular race. And I enjoyed it. And, you know, every Friday we'd have a we'd have a recap of what happened this week in, in the uh in the in the presidential primaries and caucuses and and that's how I got interested in all of this stuff and I wasn't particularly I have two boys now uh, who are in high school and uh, I was not particularly good in chemistry and biology and the sciences and so I was thrilled that there was uh, you know politics and something like this that I uh, gravitated to my mom you know to help me track what was going on our local paper covered it a little bit but didn't cover it a lot. Uh, my mom bought me a subscription to Time Magazine and I started reading Time Magazine and I started following along through that what was going on. And, and if we drove now from here, Jim, to Dover, Delaware, you could still go to my bedroom and over in the corner are a stack of Time Magazines from the late 80s and early 90s that are about three quarters up the wall. Um, and one of the more fascinating things that I did is when President Obama, who also was a member of the Congressional Black Caucus, um, joined the caucus and there was a big uh, to do about his joining the CBC and, and becoming uh, a senator um, after Carol Mosley Braun had been a senator when she served um, in the early 90s. Uh, he joined in, in 2000 and, uh, in 2005. Um, uh, there was a story uh, in Time Magazine when he became the president of the Harvard Law Review. Uh, he was the first African-American uh, president of the Harvard uh, Law Review, and Time Magazine had a little write-up of him in the back of the back of the book of back of the back of the magazine. And uh, I went and did a Google search and found out what the date was. And I when next time I went back home, I went through my magazines, and sure enough, 
I had a copy of that magazine. Uh, I d- obviously don't remember reading it when it happened. I may have, I just don't remember reading it. But the fact that I could go back after he got elected to the Senate and see and go back and find, you know, a magazine from uh, 15 years before that, uh, still there uh, in pretty good shape was was just was just fascinating. But um, I still that remember when he came to the caucus and, you know, he's one of the people that I would tell you would come from a week to week basis. And when he was running, he came and he said, I'm running for the Senate and I look forward to joining you guys uh, as a senator in the CBC in a, in, uh, in a few months. And everyone was like, right. OK, good luck. We're, we're really <laughs> we're really behind you uh, and we hope you win. And, you know, great that you're running. And lo and behold, you know, not only did he did he run? He, he ran, he won, and, and obviously he became president. Oh, boy. Um, there's a lot to, to follow up on there. I just want to say, I, I, you know, hundreds of miles away was also reading Time magazines along with you. Um, that was my portal. And I really, I really loved learning about current events. I didn't, you know, connect the dots that I would like a job or a career in public events until, you know, much later. But this is a business that if you like current events, man, there's so much, it's a feast, you know, every day. Um, You know, so after Delaware State, um, you went on later, you got a master's uh, in public policy from Duke, along with a law degree uh, from Duke. And I understand, and and well, I know that you ended up at the Department of Labor uh, during the Clinton administration working for Secretary of labor, Alexis Herman. But how did that transition happen? Uh, She called it persistence. She said, I like your persistence, Paul, is what I always remember her saying. Um, Yes, I did go to Duke and I did do both public policy and law school. But uh, what I like to say about my experience, there are two things. Number one, um, the Woodrow Wilson Foundation out of Princeton, Jim, had a fascinating program uh, called the Public Policy Fellowship, the Woodrow Wilson Fellowship Program. And um, uh, and I applied for that, got to do it, went to Berkeley for a summer. And the deal on the program was, and the goal was to try to encourage more uh, people of color to get into public policy and do advanced degrees in public policy uh, after undergraduate. Um, the deal was if you completed the program for the summer, you had an opportunity to compete for a fellowship, which would then, which would pay for your graduate education. And uh, and I won the fellowship, completed the program at Berkeley, went to Duke wow. to do the public policy school. I had always wanted to do law school, uh, so I stayed on and did law school. But I like to tell people I, I got two degrees from Duke, a lot of debt after law school, but I also found a beautiful wife while I was there. So uh, the deal in, the deal out of Durham was pretty good for uh, for me. Um, and I yeah. and I enjoyed my time, uh, my my time there. But fast forward, I came to D.C. after grad school uh, and law school and, and worked at the Department of Transportation before I went over to to, to labor. But I knew I wanted to oh. do politics. Um, and I, I was told that, you know, you got to learn something substantive about something. So I went to DOT and 
did a great little honors program there where I could move every three months to a different agency within the Department of Transportation. I did Coast Guard, I did FAA, I did highways, I did all these different things every three months I was moving around, kind of like an internship on Capitol Hill where you learn a little bit and you just keep on going. Uh, but great relationships, great opportunities, wonderful people I met. But I wanted to do politics, so I gave up my civil service uh, position for a political position. Uh, and I had met Secretary Herman um, at the convention in Chicago in 1996. Um, and I had followed her career and I knew uh, she was a very prominent person. And I remember meeting her uh, at the convention and telling her that I was coming to Washington and I wanted to work for somebody like her. And she said, well, contact me when you come to D.C., uh, and we'll try to be helpful. But the first thing we got to do is win this election, you know, in November. Well, they won the election and fast forward, you know, I tried to stay in touch with her and I'd send her my resume and I would see her at events and I'd say, hey, look forward to work with you. Uh, once she got confirmed, she kept her word, Jim, and she brought me on as a special assistant to the secretary. Looking back, I didn't realize how important that was and how wonderful that opportunity was to be able to work directly with a cabinet secretary every day. Um, she Incredible. put me in charge of be doing her uh, her briefing book. So I used to tell people I lived my, her life one day before she did. So if you were secretary, Mr. Papa, it would be my job to think through your day. If you're having breakfast with the president of uh, the AFL-CIO or the CEO of uh, Delta or General Motors, I, it would be my job to get a briefing document together to say, here's what the sec here's here are the last few things that the president of AFL-CIO has done. Here's some stuff that the, the president of Delta has done, the CEO of Delta has done. Here are some things that you should be thinking about asking them. Um, if she was giving a speech, I had to work with the speech writer. If she was doing an internal meeting with her uh, her sub-cabinet leaders, I'd have to figure out what was on the agenda for that, put it all in a book and get it to her uh, so she could be prepared. And some people said, wait a minute, did you really go to public policy school and law school to do that? Um, and I would say, from my standpoint, working and doing that kind of work, that was like a kid in a candy store. Uh, you know, she got to go when she was going over to the White House to do a cabinet meeting with the president. I got to see the agenda and I got to see who else was there. And, you know, she I would also get the briefing back briefing book back at the end of the day. And so sometimes there would be notes in there or a nice little card that said White House on it with a seal. And, you know, it was just fascinating uh, experience. And, you know, again, you just felt like you were really a part of stuff that you were reading about in the newspaper, or in the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times or the or the or the Washington Post. And it was just a great, great experience. But but shortly she told me after I did it for about a year or so, she said, look, you got to now go learn the department a little bit better. And I want you to go to work at one of the sub cabinet agencies. And, you know, I didn't want to move from the secretary's office because it was such a great perch and everybody had to come to me and I got to see everything. Uh, yeah, but it turned right. out to be a great opportunity. She had me work with a, a gentleman by the name of Bernard Anderson, who was an assistant secretary there. And he had worked at the Wharton School at, at UPenn and uh, had been a tenured professor there in business. And um, just was a wonderful, wonderful mentor, uh, teaching me the agency, teaching. I mean, I worked in an agency that did employment standards, so wage and hour issues. And every first Friday of the month, Jim, is, is jobs day. Today is jobs day. And I got to say that, you know, we got some great numbers today, 531,000 new jobs created 
uh, in the month of uh, October. Um, so it looks like when hopefully we're coming out of this pandemic and getting a little bit of mojo back uh, again. But why don't I pause there since I feel like I'm filibustering and working the United no, States Senate. It, <laughs> These are great stories. What a window into um, the Secretary of Labor and and just you know leadership positions generally to be uh, compiling that book. To your point, you get to see everything the secretary is seeing the day before, and you also learn, you know, how dialogue at that level happens. So I can see where that has served you well throughout your career. So you've been at labor, transportation. Capitol Hill, let me ask you a, a very staffer-esque question, which is, what, in your opinion, separates the outstanding staffer from the very good staffer? That's a good question. I mean, look, all the folks who work in this business, I mean, I think have a lot of talent. I, I feel like I've always learned from other people. Uh, I learned from you all when you all were running uh, the Democratic Caucus uh, for... Uh, uh, for Mary Emanuel, uh, soon to hopefully be Ambassador Emanuel. Um, you know, you meet people along your journey that, that you learned from. And, but one of the things I think I, uh, I've learned is, you know, the really good staffers can get along with everybody uh, and understand that this is not personal. Uh, we're here to ch all try to achieve a goal of making America better. I don't think anyone who works in this business is trying to figure out how America isn't better. I just don't believe that. There are just different yeah. paths that people believe that we should go. Uh, some believe let's decentralize everything, let's get government out of the way, and let's just let every let's let the market handle it. I don't think that that's probably the best the best route. But some people believe that. Um, Others believe that you know government should be involved in everything. I don't believe that either. Um, and, you know, the balance comes from uh, the good staffers engaging with one another um, and making the place work and function. Um, some of the best experiences I had was when, and they did away with this, you could, you could go on trips uh, with uh, other staffers, Democrats and Republicans together. It's kind of hard to not like people when you get to know them personally and get to meet their family and understand their kids and the same things you're going through, they're going through and the, the bond develops. And so you can call people around this town where folks are just like, well, how the heck do you know, you know, uh, you know, Bob Dole's, you know, head of trade, uh, lead trade staffer? Well, we went on a trip out west of Seattle to go check out the ports. And we had a great time. We had lunch and dinner. It turns out he has family in Dover, Delaware, too. And we went to the same high school. And, you know, so well, we need you to put out a statement that says that bill is a bad bill. Well, can I call Jim first and ask him what the goal was before I go out there and do that? That's the kind of, you know, uh, relationship building that you have to have that I think separate the, the great staffers from the very good staffers. And again, if you're willing to listen and learn and follow, uh, I think everyone can be a great staffer. But I think, you know, I see the ones who differentiate themselves are the ones who, again, try to get along with everyone and take the extra step, you know, learn the substance, learn the process, uh, but also are willing to say, you know what, I don't have all the right answers. And I, my, my boss is not always right. Uh, and so I may have to go tell Congressman Watt or Congressman Cummings or Congresswoman Johnson or whomever your uh, elected official is, hey, 
we're not we're not we're not on the right side of all of this. Uh, and here are three things you probably should know before you go ahead and make that statement, Congressman. And you have to be confident enough and did your homework enough uh, to be able to do that. Um, because the member will come back and thank you and say, you know what, I almost stepped in it, but the fact that you were willing to share this with me and did your homework, um, you know, um, it was a, was a value. Yeah. Oh, so well put. This podcast is brought to you by Wash U at Brookings, executive education for those who work in and with government. Learn the art of handling problems with single courses delivered as live, virtual, or in-person sessions, or with a certificate in public leadership, policy strategy, data, or supply chain. Explore your opportunities with Wash U at Brookings at olin.wustl.edu slash seminars. That's O-L-I-N dot W-U-S-T-L dot E-D-U slash seminars. Okay, back to the conversation. Um, I want to ask you about uh, an issue that Capitol Hill continues uh, to struggle with, which is the diversity of the staffers on Capitol Hill. Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, two associations that represent uh, black congressional staffers, both from the House and the Senate, released an open letter that called on co- on Congress uh, to change the way it thinks of and approaches um, hiring people of color. And just to give you some statistics that they cited, uh, black Americans make up about 13 percent of the U.S. population, but only three percent of senior Senate staff. And when you look at the chief of staff role in particular in the Senate, it is two out of 100. My experience on Capitol Hill, um, most of it was on the House side. And while the House staff is more diverse, the membership is more diverse. And, you know, in a way, it sort of masks the problem, in my opinion. Many uh, of of the black congressional staff work for members who themselves are African-American. And that's great, but it it shows that the white members are still not, you know, hiring in ways that reflect their districts, and which I, I want to emphasize their own districts and their own constituents are being underrepresented. My question for you, if if Congress got serious and if the, the leaders um, on both sides of Capitol Hill um, were to implement uh, some changes, what sort of things uh, would they do to improve the, the representation of the staff who work there? Uh, great question, Jim. And it, there's lots of layers to this, I think. I think what I have found as I've studied and, and, and worked on these issues now for a very long time is, is, are a couple of things. Number one, I find that members, district offices and Senate offices back home in the states that they work in are much more diverse than their Washington, D.C. offices. Hmm. Uh, so it may not it may be that your office in D.C. is not reflective of what your constituents look like, but your office back home in Detroit looks like the community of Detroit. So you have a Muslim population of 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 your constituents who have a direct person in the Detroit Washington Detroit office uh, to talk to, uh, and African Americans and Latinos. I I I have found and seen that those offices are really diverse. Uh, but when it comes to Washington, it could be the high cost of living. It could be the fact that you know, as you said earlier, you know, some of these jobs you don't even know exist. Um, 
And unless someone exposes you to it, and Congressman Cummings used to talk about exposure all the time, you know, unless you're exposed to what happens and what the opportunities are, you don't even know what you're missing. Um, he told a story about when he was uh, forsworn in as a member of Congress. His father came to the swearing in. Uh, and after he was sworn in, his father started crying. And he asked his dad, Dad, why are you crying? And he said, now I know what I could have been but I didn't have the opportunity. I couldn't run for office, Elijah, when I was your age because there were laws in place and, 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 and policies in place that prevented me from doing it. I am happy now to see my son do it, but mine, we could have had a generation. We could have been like the Kennedys. You could have been the second Cummings coming to, to represent Baltimore, but I just didn't have the opportunity. I think the same thing is true at a staff level um, now. Um, you know, my children are exposed to and have seen their dad work in politics and know I worked on Capitol Hill and, and they might work on Capitol Hill, but it's not going to be foreign to them because they saw me do it. They saw me do it at the level I was able to do it. Um, and they saw and they understood the joy that I got out of doing it. If, if you don't ever see or know anyone who had to do it, you don't even know again what's what's possible. So there has to be deliberate effort, as you said, by both Democrats and Republicans. This isn't one party's problem because it's the people's house. It's the people's Senate uh, and it's our government. So that's across government. My guess is if you go into the agencies, it's the same thing. And then we're talking really at a senior level and a policy level. And where, where it makes a difference is you get to bring your life experiences to the table and that's going to bring out better policy uh, for healthcare. I mean, if, if our healthcare system was, our healthcare system is the greatest, but yet we still have these wide disparities. If the policies we were putting in place were so good, we wouldn't have those disparities. Maybe there needs to be other people brought to the table, other uh, 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 participants brought to the table to help us along the way. Why is it we have so few hospitals in rural areas? Why is it that folks don't go into the federal, the federally uh, qualified medical centers that we have? Why aren't there more community health centers? Why are there not more doctors of color uh, working in these facilities? What can we do? Who can we partner with? Um, uh, and who can we partner with to do it? If you bring people to the table, um, it, 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 it changes it. As you said, two, two chief of staffs out of 100. My guess is if we looked at staff directors, it would be the same dismal numbers. If we looked at the professional staffs on the committees, same dismal numbers. Again, those are the key places where committee, where, where, where decisions are made where recommendations are made. And again, if you're not at the table, uh, as some people say, you're then on the menu. Uh, but what the goal should be to figure out how we bring more people to the table and, and deliberately do it because it has a ripple effect um, across, uh, across the board. It absolutely does. Um, that was really well said. Um, I want to pick up on, you referenced your boys. They've seen you have an incredible career in public service. They've also seen you have an incredible private sector career. Um, today at Federal Strategies, the firm you founded in 2007, you have clients that include Adobe, the American Kidney Fund, Amazon, Apple, AbbVie, Biogen, and I've only listed the A's and the B's. <laughs> Those are some very big named clients. Um, Tell me, what what do you think um, is 
the the best role and sort of the like when lobbying is done best, what does it look like? Uh, well, number one, I'm very thankful and privileged to be able to work with just wonderful clients and people at the end of the day, Jim. Um, I enjoy what I get to do now. Uh, my kids uh, were a little nervous when I uh, started the firm, uh, uh, Federal Street Strategies, because I had been at a big firm and uh, uh, and they liked and they liked the comfortableness of it. And they're like, Daddy, you have a cool office. Uh, you uh, you uh, you seem to do pretty well, and we get to go on vacation. So, what's this? <laughs> what's this new thing that you want to do about doing this all by yourself? But Jim, I will tell you, this goes back to again what you see uh, when I was growing up in that Time Magazine story that we shared earlier. Uh, I remember seeing an article about Ron Brown when he became the first black uh, uh, chairman of the National Democratic Committee. He had been working as a lobbyist in Washington, D.C. And I remember trying to think to myself, like, what is he doing? Now, there was a couple of clients that they mentioned there that were a little bit outside of what I would want to do. He was working for a a couple of foreign clients. But the fact that he had been able to navigate uh, working in Washington on with Senator Kennedy, uh, with a private law firm, with the National Urban League, He was able to balance all these different things and be very successful. And then he was leaning up against this cool sports car. And I was just like, wow, that I think I want to be like him one day. Um, And I still remember meeting him uh, just uh, one or two times uh, when I was in school. Um, And unfortunately, he passed away uh, before right before I graduated from law school in a terrible accident. in uh, in uh, in Bosnia, when when he was going over trying to do a a commercial exchange uh, business exchange program uh, after the war there, um, but again, what I saw, what I was able to be exposed to, allowed me to think about doing this kind of work. Uh, I always wanted to own my own business. Um, I you know again, there are not many African Americans who get to own their own businesses and decide what they want to do. Uh, and I kept complaining about it and saying, well, there's not enough and they, no one's doing this. And at one point I said to myself, okay, big mouth, why don't you start your own business and figure out uh, whether or not you can do this? And then you can stop complaining about everyone else not starting their business. And again, it's not easy to do, um, but I got great training from Tony Podesta uh, I learned how to do this. I learned how to do contracts. I learned how to uh, manage clients. I learned how to do the filing of the lobby disclosure forms. All of those things I learned how to do uh, at a bigger firm. And then I said I wanted to give my give a give a round uh, give a try at it. Some of those f- clients that you mentioned were clients that I I I I had when I was at the bigger firm uh, who followed me when I. Uh, when I left and have just, you know, I, I appreciate the confidence in which they've um, invested in me and the opportunities that they've given me. And again, um, my sons get to see it. And one of the funny sto- funnier stories uh, about this is my, my youngest, Jordan, uh, you know, is, is bigger than his dad. He's 6'3". And so he thinks he's going to be in a basketball player in the NBA. And, and he just might be, because again, if you dream things and you see things, you, you, you may be able to do it just by sheer will. Um, but one of his cousins asked him, and I wasn't even around at a family gathering, 
uh, a couple of years ago what he was going to be when he grew up. And he says, I'm going to be an NBA player and I'm going to be uh, playing playing basketball um, professionally. And they and her, his cousin says, well, what if that doesn't work out? And he says, uh, well, I, I'll just take over my dad's firm uh, because <laughs> because he seems to do pretty well. And, and that'll be my backup plan. And my wife told me that story, which, again, just tells you that your kids are watching. They are seeing what you're doing, uh, what role model you emulate for them. They will then think about in this in, in, a, in ways that you may not they may not even articulate it to you, but they'll be they'll think in the back of their mind. Hey, I could probably do that. Too. And, you know, it, I hear that often from other staffers and, and young people in Washington when they go and look me up and read how old I am now. Uh, and they say, uh, tell me how I can do what you do. And I tell them, look, there's no shortcuts. There's no easy road to do this. I couldn't have done this when I came out of school in 1996. I couldn't have done this, I think, right coming off of Capitol Hill. I think you got to go and learn. And it takes time. And you got to be willing to put in the time and the effort. And you know, running a business, Jim, you got to stay up late um, and you're going to hit some roadblocks and lose some hair along the way and uh, and turn gray too. But um, but it's all well worth it um, if it's what you want to do and that passion that Congressman Cummings uh, always used to talk about. That is absolutely right. Um, okay, I've got just a couple more questions for you. They are recurring segments. Uh, one of them is called In the Vault. Can you tell me about a time when you made a mistake? What happened and what did you learn from it? Oh, you're talking about yesterday? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're still reflecting uh, on yesterday's. <laughs> well, look, I mean, you know, uh, one of the mistakes I remember uh, making uh, had to do with my, pre- my press interactions. And so... You know, when you talk to the press, you got to be you either got to tell them you're off the record or on background. Otherwise, they quote you uh, verbatim and, you know, not understanding who you're talking to on the other end is uh, not, you know, unless you know them well, you just have to be careful. And so I remember when I left the Hill, I I was called up by a reporter who asked me a question about (laughs) my interactions working with members and and the like. And I told her what I did and why we did it and why we would engage with certain members and all the like. Uh, And little did I know she was framing it in a way that wasn't going to be necessarily positive. Um, And and, and I remember uh, a member calling me afterwards and saying, hey, Paul, you know, we were surprised that you would talk to a reporter about, about things in this way without fully understanding what was was happening and so look we we understand everybody makes mistakes we talk to the press all the time so we know how to have our guard up uh you need to understand that they're gonna because of where you and this was shortly after i'd left capitol hill working for the members of the cbc um you know she's like you got to remember that people are gonna call you about us and you've got to figure out you know are they friend or foe or are they trying to be helpful or hurtful? And you just got to balance it. Luckily for me, I had built up credibility with them, having worked with them so closely. So they knew I didn't mean any harm. It's just, you know, when you say certain things, if a reporter is, uh, you know, seeking to, to make it uh, negative, uh, they, they're going to make it negative and, and, and you're going to get caught in the middle. And so it was a lesson for me. And so, you know, again, if you don't go through it, um, and I had never really liked talking to the press, 
Um, and I, and for whatever reason, that particular day, I thought I was, uh, I thought I was in the clear and it just tells you, you're never in the clear. Right. Uh, I've, I've been there. Um, okay. Last question for you. If I could raise the money and build a hall of fame to staffers on the national mall and fill it with the very best of the profession, who would you nominate for the staffer hall of fame? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, I got, I got, I got two answers for you. Uh, be- Great. Because we got the House and we've got the Senate, and I'll even throw in an Administration Hall of Fame staffer. Um, in the in the House, I think uh, my Hall of Fame staffer uh, would be Yebby Watkins, Yelberton Watkins, who has been Congressman Jim Clyburn's chief of staff pretty much the entire time he has been uh, in, uh, in Congress and, um, is just a, uh, terrific strategist, uh, and understands the politics, the business community and the like. Uh, I know he's had dozens of opportunities to leave, but he is committed to the work that he has done. Um, in the Senate, uh, Sherrod Brown has a legislative director whose name is Jeremy Hykus, who, uh, is about as savvy a, a, a Senate staffer as you're ever going to uh, meet. He is uh, humble. He is smart. He represents his boss well. He connects the dots well and is just really, really good. Um, and my administration staffer, uh, Hall of Fame uh, nominee, uh, would be um, Ted Kaufman, although he doesn't work in the in the administration now, he was Joe Biden's longtime chief of staff. And when uh, and when uh, President Biden became Vice President Biden, he nominated uh, Ted Kaufman, or he recommended to Governor Minner that Ted Kaufman become senator. And I got to meet Ted when I was at Duke, Jim, and he would fly down and teach a class called the Congress. Uh, every week. Um, and uh, it was the best class I taught it. I, I took at Duke. Uh, and it allowed me to see a window again into what was happening on a weekly basis in Washington. So we would read about budget fights and uh, foreign policy uh, debates. And Ted would then come down and we do a case study about what happened and what the meetings were like on a week-to-week basis. And he was just fascinating, humble, kind, brilliant. Um, But, you know, he got to be a principal. So he was a staffer. He got to be a principal uh, and is now one of the president's closest friends and and advisors. And Joe Biden has had a lot of friends and close advisors and chief of staffs and the like. But the fact that he's, of all of those, he thought Ted Kaufman should replace him in the United States Senate after he had served there uh, uh, for, for 36 years, uh, just is a testament. Uh, now I also realized that, that I just gave you three men. I want to make certain that everyone knows that there are women who could be and should be in that same, uh, hall of fame, uh, across the board. And my predecessor, Andrea Martin, who was CBC executive director, uh, Joyce Brayboy, who was also a long-time, uh, uh, chief of staff, um, and one of the chief of staffs, uh, in the Senate now, um, that you mentioned, uh, is a, uh, is one of those two, um, uh, African-American chief of staffs. Jennifer DeCasper is, uh, Tim Scott's, uh, chief of staff. Um, and it's just a brilliant woman who can, again, 
put the pieces together, is not hyper-partisan in any way, shape, or form, uh, but does such a service for her, uh, does such a service for her, uh, for her senator. Um, so I don't want anyone calling me after this podcast and telling me that I just named three boys. Uh, <laughs> no. I have, I've got a lot of women friends who would, who would, who would probably outshine the boys uh, in terms of a Mount Rushmore on the mall of, in Washington. Um, those are all great nominations. They're all going in. Uh, you, you can have multiple ballots. Um, and Paul, you'd be on my ballot sheet. And I am just so pleased and grateful uh, that you gave uh, your time and your stories and perspective uh, to our, uh, me and my listeners today. So thank you. Thank you, Jim. Uh, it, it is fascinating to see what you have built with this staffer episode series and the fact that you're giving voice to them um, is, is just, is just amazing. And it reminds me of how we even got together. And right now, as we've been talking, uh, Colin Powell's funeral, uh, is happening now. And he was another person that I met along the way, uh, working for the, working for the CBC. And, um, you said, you mentioned, you seen, you saw my post, um, and we, uh, and we went, uh, and we went from there. So, uh, so thank you again for the opportunity and, and look forward to, Uh, continuing to stay in touch and and, and engage with you. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.